You're fighting each other and think you're doing well. And the sinners on the outside going to heaven, that's all. Uh, I tell you, that's all. But you better have Jesus now. How's it going in general? How's it going in general? Uh, okay, okay. Now I had I had a car problem. I was like stranded for a while. I was in Foxborough. It was a little scary, but I made it. Yeah, Foxborough's a scary place. They have a pretty good diner there, though. Red Wing Diner. That's not the one I was thinking of. Uh, no, I forget the name of it. It's like the American Diner. So it's, it has some patriot. Uh, it's Patriots Diner. I think that's in Foxborough. Ah, uh, patriotic. Well, I went to Red Wing Diner, and it was it was very good. So that was the high point of my time in foxborough other than that it was pretty pretty existential well today on god save america where we go through the 33 most popular denominations in america we are going to escape foxborough we're definitely not going to talk about diners unless there are lots of diners associated with the dutch reformed church (laughs) the reformed church of america they're pretty into pancakes it's a lot of pancakes cabbage that pretty much covers the dutch palette i think so this is a public episode we're doing another christian denomination i think a lot of listeners have heard of our less popular by population denominations like wicca christian science what else quakers Quakers. even if people don't know what they are i think the labels for these groups are pretty common sam what i would like for you to do today is get us excited about the Dutch Reformed Church in America, or the Reformed Church in America, because I'm willing to bet that most people who aren't affiliated with this church, they don't know about it. They don't know about it at all. Even the members probably don't even know what it is. (laughs) I can tell you some of my preconceived notions about the church before I looked into it. There are only two things in this world that I hate. Intolerance of other people's cultures and the Dutch. So this is a very sensitive topic for us, but what are your prejudices about the Dutch? Well, the Dutch Reformed Church of America, okay, New Amsterdam, old New York. I was thinking that this group must be the really established, bluest of the blue blood Protestant Christians in the United States. So I was assuming people like the Vanderbilts, the Roosevelts. Is Van Dyke, is that a famous name associated with a wealthy family? Well, I think it's a Renaissance painter. Okay. But you're right, the Roosevelts, at least some of the Roosevelts, the Oyster Bay Roosevelts, were Dutch Reformed. So that gives us one president, Theodore Roosevelt. But the really classy Hyde Park Roosevelts, they moved on to Episcopalian. So it's true, there are some blue bloods, and there's like the collegiate churches in New York City are very old, affluent, you know, old upper class churches that are RCA, Reformed Church in America, from Dutch origins. But really, the people who got really rich, who were really upper crust, they mostly went over and became Episcopalian. So it's not as wealthy, all in all as some churches like the Episcopalians. It is mostly more kind of middle class. They're mostly in New York and the Midwest. So sort of the two big centers are New York and Michigan. They're kind of scattered around Pennsylvania, Iowa, places like this. So it's not as blue blood as you might think, but there's definitely that element in it. Technically, the church we're talking about today is called Reformed Church in America, or RCA, but it does derive from 
the Dutch Reformed Church, and sometimes it'll still even be called that, Dutch Reformed, even though technically now it's RCA. It is all over the country, but like I said, it's mostly concentrated in New York and the upper Midwest, with just a few scattered congregations in other places. A lot of those other churches scattered around are in immigrant communities. So, for example, in our area, the nearest RCA church that came up is the Taiwanese Christian Church of Boston, which is located in Framingham. So there's a sort of immigrant population, especially of Taiwanese people who are in RCA, and they've kind of established it in some more places here and there. As for the numbers, it has diminished a lot. You know, it's mainline Protestant. So the rule is, <laughs> it's like dropped by half over the last 40 years or so. So it used to be over 300,000 for a long time. Now it's diminished down to maybe about 190, 195,000. Okay. So still, you know, a significant group, but not as prominent as it used to be. If we were to go into an RCA church now, we would see immigrant communities going to the churches, mostly Taiwanese. We would see middle class, white Americans whose families have been here for hundreds of years, perhaps, going to the churches in the Midwest and in New York City and New York. Yeah, you'd have some people who are, like you said, very long established from Dutch, English, French, German ancestry. And then in some places, you'd have more recent, you know, comparatively recent Dutch immigrant communities. Like in the Midwest, they're more sort of like middle class and working class Dutch immigrants who came over in the 1800s. It's, you know, it's super mainline with like the very, very faintest hint of ethnic. But basically, you know, it's a mainline Protestant church. So they, they have Sunday church worship, usually with sermonizing and some set traditional liturgy, a hymnal. It's governed in the same basic sort of way as a Presbyterian church, where there are councils of elders, sort of local and regional councils called synods, sometimes also smaller councils called a classis which is like a very, you know, old-fashioned Dutch term. You got that little dash of Dutch. But basically structured, and also the teachings, the theology is basically similar to Presbyterianism. And some people go back and forth. Like I mentioned, Theodore Roosevelt, he was raised largely going to the Presbyterian church in Long Island, but also was a member of RCA. So they're Reformed Protestant. This is something we'll maybe kind of have to unpack, but Reformed Protestant is like a broad branch of Protestantism, which we haven't really talked about yet. We haven't gotten to these other bigger denominations like Congregationalist, Presbyterian, but they're all part of this sort of broad group. They believe in some pretty standard Protestant doctrines, justification by faith, scripture is the ultimate authority for teaching and practice, they are also not universalist, so they teach that not everyone is saved, right? Some people are going to heaven and some people are going to hell. I thought universalist versus non-universalist or the reactionary title Trinitarian meant you don't believe in a three-partite God, you believe in one God. You're thinking of Unitarian. So oh, okay. you, there, some are Unitarian and some are Trinitarian. And then when it comes to who is saved, some people are Universalist and some are not. Okay. So Reformed Protestants are not. The RCA has four basic statements of faith, what their core beliefs are. And those are the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, 
and the Belhar Confession. If we go through the history, there's a lot of history here of the Dutch Reformed Church. And I think some of it is really interesting, and we can explain sort of in order what each of those things are. Before we jump into that, I have some basic questions that maybe will be answered by the history that you'll tell us. So we have the Reformed Protestant Church, and this is the Dutch Reformed Protestant Church. Is Reformed and Protestant kind of a bit redundant yeah isn't that a bit redundant well yeah it's certainly it does sound redundant like protestant means you came out of the reformation but actually reformed has taken on a more specific meaning in the christian world so it does mean something much more particular it's a term that i tend to use because it is more historically and theologically correct sometimes people use the word calvinist as a kind of catch-all for Reformed Protestants, but it's a bit of a misnomer. It doesn't all come from Calvin. Calvin is important in the Reformed tradition, but he's not the big defining figure that people sometimes see him as. So it's a little bit of a misnomer. It's more technically correct to say Reformed. Reformed Protestantism is a branch of Protestantism that really comes out of the Swiss Reformation. So it's a stream of thought that has its roots in the reformations that happened in Swiss cities in the early and mid-1500s, sort of in the first couple generations of the Reformation. Like I mentioned, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Swiss Reformed, and a number of others are all part of this sort of branch. The Swiss Reformation started in Zurich with a radical reformer named Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli came up very quickly on the heels of Martin Luther, who, you know, was the original spark of the Protestant Reformation. Zwingli, in a lot of ways, was very similar to Luther. And so a lot of the same kind of ideas from Luther's Reformation got just sort of adopted wholesale into the Swiss Reformation. So, you know, sola scriptura, the idea that scripture is the one final authority on teachings, the abolition of most sacraments, right? All the sacraments that aren't based in passages in scripture are abolished. Also abolishing most holidays, festivals, saints' days, abolishing monasticism, and using the vernacular language, the idea that people should read the Bible directly in their own language, German, English, Dutch, whatever, and the doctrine of justification by faith, that that's how you know that you're saved from your sin is if you have faith in the gospel. All of that, you know, is in common, just sort of basic Protestant doctrine, right? But then in a lot of ways, the Swiss Reformation went further. They believed that the church should imitate the primitive church as described in the Bible. So that means things like taking out images. The Swiss reformers went through the churches and tore down statues and painted over wall paintings and so on. They abolished instrumental music, right, because it's not described in the primitive church in the Bible. And they put a very great emphasis on God's sovereignty, right? They put this priority on the idea that God is all-powerful and is in control of everyone's fate. You do not control your own fate. Puny mortals like us do not have the power to determine God's actions. So, hence, that means most Reformed Protestants preach some form of predestination. Everyone's fate is already sealed outside of time. You do not have free will, which is, it's also close to what Luther taught, but Luther kind of didn't want to make a big deal of it. He was like, that just doesn't sound so good. But for Reformed Protestantism, it's very important. 
I can see how some groups might latch on to that, having free will or not having free will. Why does one Protestant group go for one versus the other? Well, it can go either way. And, you know, that's a really difficult question. It's kind of a mystery. I think that there are certain things you can see. The thing is, Reformed Protestantism clearly appealed most strongly to a particular sort of audience. And it tended to be highly literate people who could read the scriptures and read theology for themselves. Merchants, professionals, bureaucrats, these sort of people who were particularly concentrated in commercial cities. So places like Zurich, Geneva, Amsterdam, London. These are the places where Reformed Protestantism really took hold. Is there something about the doctrine of predestination, the idea that, you know, pious actions like giving donations to the church or making pilgrimages, the notion that that doesn't help you and that, in fact, it's sort of, you could say, clean moral living is actually what shows that you're saved. So this is the final really important element in Reformed Protestantism is the idea of sanctification. So they say, well, everyone is predestined, so there's no point in doing things like, oh, let me give some money to this monastery so they'll say prayers for my soul, right? That those things are all pointless and those sort of rituals and sacraments. And rather they say, well, you're saved or you're not. And the way that you know is if you live a sort of pious moral life, if you're chaste in your sexual life and you don't gamble and you don't drink and you live, you could say a kind of clean middle-class lifestyle, that is how you show that you have been saved or technically you are a saint. And this is a lot of what Reformed Protestant worship is all about. It's about preaching the gospel and in a way you could say kind of scaring yourself into living this very pious lifestyle, right? And it's that everyday lifestyle that reflects your sanctification. So do you think certain communities psychologically actually took comfort in the idea that there was no such thing as free will? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's very common across the board. A lot of people embraced either Luther's message or the Reformed message because it relieved them from this feeling of guilt and fear that they had to do the right thing in order to be saved. It says, no, no, it's out of your hands. If you say eternal fate is out of your hands, then the key thing is not, what do I do? Instead, the key thing is, how do I know if I'm saved or not? It must be reflected in something about my life. It must be reflected in my inner feelings or how I respond to a sermon or a scripture passage. And that gives me assurance, right? This feeling of relief and and confidence that I'm saved. It changes the central question, right? From what do I do to how do I know? And that is very important in Reformed Protestantism. And a big central rule of Reformed Protestantism is that you have to have some kind of sanctification first before you can be a full member of the church. So you have to show that you are clean living, pious living, and that you are in this way sanctified before you then are allowed to take communion and be a full communicant in the church. And sometimes, of course, that leads to problems and conflicts when there are disagreements about who exactly is measured up enough to be allowed into the church. You weren't baptized necessarily into the RCA or the Reformed Protestant churches? Yes. Well, most Reformed churches make some sort of deal where you can be baptized and you can baptize infants, but that still doesn't mean they're really a full member of the church. They still have to be sanctified and accepted 
before they can take communion. So if you say the only two sacraments that Protestants believe in are baptism and the Eucharist, baptism you sort of get for free, but the Eucharist you still have to earn. You only get it once you're a full church member. So there's a sort of strict drawing of the circle of who is really fully included in the church and who is not. The big model for Reformed Protestantism of how to have a Protestant society and a Protestant church, in their view, is Geneva under the rule of John Calvin, who was a French Reformed Protestant theologian that the people of Geneva then hired to sort of run their church and reform it along these lines. And it was a very strict society, right? Very strict rules about nudity, dancing, gambling, drinking. There were curfews. It was basically like what we think of as Puritanism. Puritanism is just English Reformed Protestantism. It's just the English variation. But Geneva for a while was almost like the Rome or the Mecca of Reformed Protestantism. Calvin's books, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, were translated and spread all around Europe and sent this movement international outside of Switzerland. But he was not the original inventor, and he was not the only thinker who was really important. Is there a class component to why it was so strict? I'm assuming these are educated folk. They're probably making money from trade. I'm thinking about the Dutch Golden Age. Uh, Wasn't that happening at the same time? Is there something like, in order to compensate for having so much wealth and being so successful, I'm going to show piety by being very strict? Yes. Well, I think so. I think so. But that's a very live debated question. It's not something that's really settled in history. But there's the famous Max Weber's argument in, what is the title? One of his early books, of course, was Something and the Spirit of Capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, is it the Protestant Reformation? I think it might be the Protestant Reformation and the Spirit of Capitalism. I really should remember this. But he basically argues that Reformed Protestantism, the idea of predestination, that this then gave rise to capitalism because it told people, don't do these sacrificial acts like pilgrimage or donation or fasting. Instead, just work hard and accumulate a lot of money, and that's how you know you're saved. So he sees it as the doctrine comes first, and then capitalism comes out of that. I don't think that's correct. I disagree. I'm of the mindset that it was more the opposite, that there was this middle class of people who already were focusing their attention on building up wealth and building up their respectability and their prestige as a sort of urban commercial class. And then Reformed Protestantism sort of worked for them, and hence they adopted it. So, you know, Weber doesn't really address like, okay, well, why is it that Reformed Protestantism really took off in Switzerland, the Netherlands, southern England, you know, all these places that were like really urban and commercial. So I think it happened more the reverse way. So once Calvin and his institutes and other books by other reformers in Switzerland spread out into Europe, certain other groups of people embraced it and sort of adopted that Geneva model. And the main places where you see it grasped onto and made into an official religion are in the Netherlands, Scotland and Hungary. All of them happened pretty quickly around 1570, give or take a few years. Circles of urban merchants, burghers, grandees kind of seize power and institute reformed Protestantism in those countries. In the Netherlands, this was very important because it was immediately linked together to politics. I mean, it is everywhere, but in the Netherlands, they were not an independent country yet. The Netherlands were all a domain 
under the control of Spain. So they were ruled by the Habsburg dynasty and their sort of viceroys and, you know, governors. And the Habsburg dynasty was really based in Spain. So they're under the control of this major, you know, Catholic power that is Spain. In the 1560s, some of the towns and cities in the Netherlands who are becoming, you know, mercantile, they rebel against Spain and start a little kind of revolutionary republic among themselves. And their leaders adopt reformed Protestantism. So they have sort of leaders in exile because they're like independence rebels, right? And they go take shelter for a while in Germany and they meet in Heidelberg and they form the Heidelberg Catechism, which is pretty much just a straightforward Protestant theological statement of just, you know, we believe in scripture, justification by faith, you know, all pretty familiar stuff similar to what you would have heard from Luther. But then once they return to the Netherlands and are really able to start cementing control and building up a base of de facto independent country, they also create the Belgic Confession. And that's where they really come down firmly on the side of this reformed theology, you know, predestination, very much in the vein of Calvin. They set up a state church in this new Dutch Republic, this rebel Republic. This Dutch church is reformed Protestant. You know, they have clergy, educated ministers, and they have these councils called classices and synods to sort of manage things instead of having bishops like the Catholic Church. But not everyone in the Netherlands is necessarily on board with this. It's still controversial. So a lot of people remain Catholic. So you have this sort of core Protestant area around Amsterdam, sort of Holland and Zealand are very Protestant. But then you still got a lot of Catholics. And then you have some people who are like, oh, well, we're okay with Protestantism. But this reformed thing is like too extreme. We don't like this predestination thing, especially. So there's controversy and there's a split. And in the early 1600s, a more moderate party comes forward and sort of challenges the church and the government. And they complain about certain aspects of the Belgic confession, especially this sort of emphasis on predestination. This moderate party, they're called remonstrants because they're complaining. And sometimes they're also called Arminian because their main theologian is named Jacobus Arminius. So these Arminians are sort of a counterinsurgency group within this Protestant Republic. They argue for some degree of free will. So they say, no, we think that you can, even if you're saved, you can mess it up. So if you've been saved and you have faith, you can still lose your faith and sort of relapse back into being sinful and hence lose your salvation. So they think there's still some room there for some degree of free will. The hardcore reformed theologians are upset and their followers in government who are mostly like, you know, intense Calvinist type Protestants. They are disgusted by this. They see it as a threat and they call an international synod in 1618, which was called the Synod of Dort, you know, almost as good as the Diet of Worms. And the Synod of Dort turns into this big sort of international meeting of reformed Protestants who sort of show up and pack the court from Switzerland and Germany and England. James I in England sends delegates and they basically have this kangaroo court where all these, you know, hardcore reformed Protestants say, no, these Arminians are all wrong. And one of their leaders gets hanged. Some of them go to jail for life. And they basically hammer out this set of canons that try to settle and define 
the core shared points of reformed theology. So it's really not until the Synod of Dort in the Netherlands that you get this clear kind of uncompromising statement of here's what we believe as reformed Protestants. And the canons of Dort can be summed up with an acronym, which is TULIP. So appropriately enough for the Netherlands, it's summed up in TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. So that stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and preservation of the saints. So that means total depravity, human nature is completely depraved, you know, you have no control over your original sin, you're incapable of doing anything to save yourself, right? We're just bad, bad, bad. And then unconditional election, God chooses to save certain people for no reason. It's unconditional. It's not based on anything you've done or anything about you. He just does, right? And we don't know why and we can't control it. Limited atonement, not everybody is saved. So they believe Christ's sacrifice was enough to save some people from sin, but only the elect, not everybody. And of course, in later years, people will fight about exactly who is elect and how many people. Is it 10%? Is it 40%? But only some people are saved. Irresistible grace. If you are saved, you can't resist it. You just are. There's nothing you can do. And so this is the thing that's really rejecting the Arminians, right? There's nothing you can do to mess it up once you have it. And preservation of the saints. Once you have it, you do forever, right? So these are the sort of clear statements. No, we absolutely affirm this sort of predestinarian view of salvation. And it's this very extreme soteriology, as it's technically called. So soteriology is like the ideas about who gets saved. So they're totally hardline about it. So is unconditional election and limited atonement. Is that equivalent to saying unconditional atonement and limited election too? Yeah, they're clearly kind of reaching into their grab bag to come up with different words for each one. But basically, you could sum it up as it's all about salvation, who gets saved. And it's only some people and there's no discernible reason why. It's not because you deserve it. It's not because you did anything. And once it's done, it's done. So that's how they see it. Very, very stark. Right. Yeah, it is. It is. So this is this sort of hardcore statement of Reformed theology, and this is hammered out in the Netherlands. So the Netherlands are, in a way, kind of the headquarters of this version, right, of Christianity. Can you explain a little bit more why this church would be growing, given how stark the Synod of Dort is? What is appealing about joining a church like that? It feels a little almost nihilistic. I don't know. It's very dark. <laughs> what do you think is the well, appeal? I mean, it's a complicated question, but, you know, some people were just convinced of it by how they viewed scripture. It's very theologically rigorous. So if that matters to you, it could be persuasive. But also, you can look at it both ways, right? That having free will means, ooh, if I do the right things, I can get into heaven. But it also, free will is a huge burden. You know, it means you have to be always afraid that you're doing the wrong thing or not doing enough of the right thing. It can be a sort of relief to say, no, you know what? It's all, it's all already determined, right? It's out, it's out of your hands. Mm -hmm. And so that could be, psychologically, that could be more comforting to some people than the reverse, right? Our, our instinct, I think, is to say free will seems more appealing, but if you really think that that means if you make a misstep, you're going to hell, then that can be more frightening. What is intriguing me is more the idea of unconditional election. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter how bad you are. <laughs> That's the key thing. And, you know, and all of this 
if you look, if you read the New Testament, you can see where they would get this notion from, you know, especially the epistles of Paul. You know, Paul is constantly saying, well, I'm saved, and not only that, I'm an apostle, but it's not because there's anything good about me. It's not because I'm so moral or I'm so great. It's just, it just is the way things turned out. It's not that I deserved it. So, that can offer a lot of hope. If you're afraid that you're a bad person, for one thing, (laughs) then it can be very uh, comforting to think, well, you know, if I'm saved, I'm saved, and it's not because I'm so good or perfect or free of sin. It does spread by colonization. You know, the Netherlands and England are the two reformed countries that have growing colonial empires or just beginning to colonize at this time. And the Netherlands, you know, unlike England, the Netherlands has this definite established church that is unequivocally reformed. And so they start to bring this church and to missionize to some degree where they colonize So that includes Indonesia. The Dutch colony in Indonesia was called Batavia, Taiwan, and Sri Lanka. And then also in the Americas, in New Netherlands, which is the area that's now New York, and the Dutch Caribbean islands, you know, like St. Martin and Curaçao, and in Southern Africa. So you still have Dutch Reformed churches of one sort or another in all these places around the world. So it goes international. So then if we talk about America specifically, you know, the Dutch start colonizing, they start sending civilian colonists to set up a colony in Manhattan in 1625. And a few years later, 1628, they organize a church. It starts with just a gathering in the mill, and they have a Dutch minister. Ten years later, 1638, they build a church building for the first time. This becomes, you know, the standard religion of New Amsterdam. And then it also spreads up into other parts of New Netherlands to Albany. Some Dutch ministers actually also act as missionaries and preach to Mohawk Indians. So it makes some inroads into the Native American population. But pretty quickly after that, 1664, England takes over. They conquer New Netherlands. They establish the Church of England. So this position of being the established official church gets taken away and shifted over technically to the Church of England. But most of the people in the colony are still Dutch Reformed. Basically, the English authorities, in order to govern, they have to recognize and respect this church. And to a great degree, they not only tolerate it, but support it. They grant incorporation, they give land, they really treat the Dutch Reformed Church very respectfully in order to keep these people in the fold, right, and keep political control. So there are very friendly relations between the Church of England and the Dutch Reformed Church. A lot of the upper class in New York was of Dutch descent. So even all the way down to the revolution, a lot of the wealthy upper class people are Dutch Reformed. And so they still have a lot of influence, a lot of power. And also a lot of the Dutch Reformed people in New York were not actually Dutch. So there were other Reformed Protestants who at different times went to New Netherlands or New York because there was a Reformed church there. So you got French Huguenots who were Calvinist, you got German Reformed from the Palatine region in Germany, and they also went over. So you got this Dutch Reformed church that was really large, it was continuing to grow, it was very respected and influential, and it also was heterogeneous. You know, you had different people of different backgrounds, different languages. Some churches were preaching in French, some in German. They also were under a split authority. So they're under the rule of the English, 
right? So civil authorities are English or later British, but they report to the classes of Amsterdam in terms of ecclesiastical affairs. If they want a minister to be ordained, they have to write to Amsterdam. If they have a dispute in the church that needs to be settled, they have to write to the classes of Amsterdam. So they're subordinate to England politically, but Amsterdam theologically. So it's this weird kind of mixed situation, which in some ways is sort of precarious. So you have this population, this colonial population in New York and a few other towns like Albany, and it's growing fast. And the colonies are growing fast, right? They've got access to a lot of land. They've pushed out a lot of Indians or their numbers are falling. So these colonies expand and their populations multiply. And you get Dutch reformed people moving all around what's now New York and down into New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, all these different Dutch reformed churches springing up all around the whole middle colonies area. There are increasing splits. They're divided by class by wealthy versus middle class versus poor. And you have a sort of concentration of wealthier people in New York, and then sort of poor farmers in places like New Jersey and Pennsylvania. They're split by language. So some of them are still speaking Dutch and really want their churches to be in Dutch. Some of them are switching to English. Some of them speak French or German. There's a lot of friction, right? And sort of power struggles between these different groups and parties in the church. Some people, especially if they're wealthy, well-to-do, if they're very Anglicized, they've adopted English, some of them just leave and switch over and become Anglican. So there's bleeding and crossover there. So there's a lot of tension here. What should this church be like? Should they remain strictly reformed? Should they only use Dutch in the church? Who's going to control the church? Then there's a split over the Great Awakening. So in the 1730s and 40s, there's this wave of evangelical revival all over, all around the colonies. And it has an instance in the Dutch Reformed Church. So this guy, Frelinghausen, who was like a preacher and minister in New Jersey, he's very populist, he's anti-formalist, he throws out the rule book, he throws out the prayer book, he preaches spontaneously, he preaches this message about sin and the need to be converted and the need to seek salvation, and he leads lay prayer meetings and it becomes sort of a popular movement, people having meetings with kind of lay preachers and striving for a conversion experience, a second birth, you know, what we today would call born again. That sort of has this outbreak within the church. And this sort of revivalist movement is then opposed by that upper class, that sort of blue blood upper class who want discipline, follow the book, maintain traditional authority. So things are already really tense and starting to break by the 1740s. And then the final fight that really splits the church in 1754 is when some young American ministers who embrace Frelinghausen and this sort of lay revival movement, they form a so-called Coetus uh, council that tries to basically overthrow the authority of the Amsterdam classis and take control of the church for themselves in America. So they set up this supposedly independent American council mainly run by these young revivalist ministers, and they claim the power to do things like ordain ministers themselves. So they no longer have to wait and obey the authority of Amsterdam. This party forms this coatus, and then their opponents, a lot of whom are older, some are European-born, they're more wealthy, they break away and form a so-called conferenti, which wants to maintain loyalty to Amsterdam and keep sort of traditional 
lines of authority. So you get this schism in the church, the Kuwaitis group, which wants to be independent, and the Conferenti group, which wants to keep the tie to the Netherlands. And the Kuwaitis group is the one that then gets a charter to start Queens College in New Jersey, and that is what we now know as Rutgers. So Rutgers University started out as a college set up to train these new young revivalist Dutch ministers in America, rather than having to send them back to the Netherlands. That's how a lot of early colleges start, is like some breakaway religious faction is like, we need to train our own clergy (laughs) rather than have to rely on those other people. They create what's now Rutgers. They sort of go then on the warpath against the Conferenti group. And one of the things they can do is if they don't like a minister who's trying to maintain this loyalty to Amsterdam, they can go to the civil authorities and say, we don't trust our minister. We demand that they have to take the loyalty oath to the king of Great Britain. And this British loyalty oath says you have to declare that, quote, no foreign prince, person, prelate, state, or potentate hath or ought to have any jurisdiction, power, superiority, preeminence, or authority, ecclesiastical or spiritual, within this realm. So they're basically forcing these older ministers to take this oath which implies that they have to disavow Amsterdam. So they're kind of forcing them to accept this independence from Amsterdam by making them pledge loyalty to the King of Britain. So this whole weird split situation is coming into play. This is related to why they chose to call the college Queen's College? I think so, yeah. That it's like, we we are loyal subjects of the crown, excuse me. (laughs) Unlike you, dual loyalties, conferenti ministers still, you know, secretly writing your letters back to Amsterdam. We are loyal British subjects. Do you think that's a bit of a cynical political move on their part? Or was that group, that breakaway group, more aligned with the monarchy, the English monarchy? I think it was a cynical political move, mainly. A lot of them, they were born in the colonies, they thought of themselves as British subjects, they spoke English, so they felt more connection to Britain than their elders or their rivals did. But mainly it was a cynical political move to just try to push out this older group out of power in the church. That was mainly what it was about. And the reason we know that is because eventually... In 1772, the Conferenti group was forced to compromise and come to an agreement. They worked out a sort of new church charter in 1772, which created an American synod. So that meant that there was now a fully empowered American Dutch Reformed Council with these powers over church discipline and ordination and all that. So basically, the Coetus group won the contest, but they still maintained a sort of formal nominal tie to Amsterdam. Right. But really, now the effective power was in the hands of American ministers in America. But just a few years after that, of course, the revolution begins. And you now have this political upheaval where states are declaring independence and taking up arms against the British crown. Right. In the revolution, New York was British occupied most of the time. And it was the big center of loyalism. So you have this sort of stronghold of British power in New York. And then these rebel provinces all around. And a lot of the fighting of the revolution, especially the brutal fighting, the raiding, the towns burned down, churches attacked, pillaging, a lot of that goes on in this sort of ring area around New York, Hudson Valley, Westchester, New Jersey. And so the Dutch reformed people are the most hard hit. 
by the real, you know, civil war infighting of the revolution. And the Dutch reformed are forced to take sides in this really brutal, you know, civil conflict. Most of the Dutch reformed, the majority sided with the revolution, including almost all the people who had supported the Coetus group and the creation of this American synod, they side with the revolution. That's <laughs> ironic. So, yeah, it's ironic because they were the ones saying, we're the loyal British subjects. But, you know, once the possibility came up of an independent American republic, they totally got on board. And the loyalists in the Dutch Reformed Church, the ones who took the loyalist side, were mostly ones who had sided with the Conferenti. So it sort of exposes it wasn't really about Amsterdam versus... London. It was more about, do you want to see an independent self-governing church in America, or do you still want to be tied to Europe? And that's more how things broke down. And it was these old grandees who more sided with London and who wanted to keep connection both to Britain and to the Netherlands. Whereas it was these young revolutionaries, you know, who took the side of independence. It was just a really deep divide. You had church against church, family against family, town against town. After the revolution, it's just like chaos because they no longer really are governed by Amsterdam. They also are now independent politically of Britain. And there's all these hard feelings and there's been all this destruction and scattering or refugees. So it's a huge mess for the first several years after the revolution. And basically all the churches decide they have to give amnesty, right? You have to just forgive and forget which side people took in the revolution and try to regroup and rebuild this church. Little by little, they did sort of start to rebuild. And then the thing after 1800, the thing that really brought things back together was we need like a shared project, guys, <laughs> that we can all work together on. And that was missionism. So this is where you start getting regular lay people, especially a lot of women, organizing, raising money, and sending out missionaries to spread the Dutch reformed version of Christianity out to the world, especially to Asia. So you get new missions sent by American Dutch reformed missionaries going abroad to India, Sri Lanka, China, and especially women tend to be leading them. And also, as people sort of come together back and rebuild the church, they're switching over more and more to English. So there are fewer and fewer people around who still speak Dutch or French or German either, for that matter. So what are they calling themselves in the early 1800s? Is this where the Reformed Church of America, that label begins to pop up? Not quite yet. So they officially incorporated in 1819 as so-called Reformed Protestant Dutch Church. So they're still explicitly labeling themselves as Dutch, even though they are now totally independent of the Netherlands. They're just an American institution run by Americans, no more formal tie to Holland, but they are still in communion with other Reformed churches. So that means that they're in communion with Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and the Dutch Reformed Church back in Europe. And that means ministers can go back and forth from one group to another. If you're a member of the Dutch Church, you can show up at a Presbyterian church and get communion. They all kind of recognize each other as like acceptable, right? But it's a totally American institution. And it wasn't till later in 1867 that they renamed themselves again to Reformed Church in America. So at that time, it's like the link to the Netherlands is so loose that they don't even use the word Dutch anymore. There were still old, wealthy Dutch Reformed churches in New York. 
So you still have that sort of old upper class, a lot of whom used to be Tories in the revolution. Tories meaning loyalists. Loyalists, right. And they sort of have to decide what they think about this. And they have to judge, do we want to join this new American church or do something else? And some of them do join the Reformed Church in America and are fully part of it. And that includes the so-called collegiate churches. So if you go to Manhattan today, there are several of these collegiate churches up and down Manhattan, and all of them branched off from that original Dutch colonial church in New Amsterdam. And they are now part of the Reformed Church of America. But some of them didn't and instead went over and became Episcopalian. And that includes the St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, which is one of the oldest churches standing in Manhattan. It's in like the East Village area. And that began as a chapel on Peter Stuyvesant's plantation. So the Dutch colonial governor set up a chapel on his land, which became a Dutch reformed church. But then in the 1800s, they went over and joined the Episcopalian church. So, you know, effectively, it's like once you're an old blue blood wasp in New York. At some point, you, you, <laughs> you probably become, become Episcopalian. Episcopalian. Yeah. And so they finally transitioned over to English. By the 1830s, there was really no more Dutch used in the churches. It's all become English. They also set up more colleges and schools. So grade schools, boarding schools, and some colleges like Union College in Schenectady was created by the Reformed Church in America. Things seem to be going along pretty well by the mid-1800s, right? They've sort of regrouped, they're doing missionism. But then there was a another split that emerged over theology. So by this time, you have all these churches like Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Dutch Reformed, and a lot of them are sort of dabbling into theological liberalism. Theological liberalism is a whole other movement. And, you know, Unitarianism is the big champion of theological liberalism. And so we'll get to that more when we talk about Unitarians. But basically, it's going back to some idea of free will. Oh, not this again. Yeah, oh, we're, do we're doing this all over again, right? So, yeah, it's not that far off from Arminianism. But, you know, theological liberalism says, you know, human beings have reason, they can improve themselves, they can act morally, they can look at Christ as a moral exemplar, and you can make yourself worthy of salvation. This inroad of theological liberalism is a challenge to the old strict reformed theology. One of the tough questions also is, who are you going to allow and who are you going to exclude from taking communion in your church? And what kind of sanctification do you have to show to be allowed as a full communicant in the church? And the liberals are more liberal, right? Whereas the old-fashioned, strict reformed say, now you don't have sanctification, you're not allowed. So there's beginnings of a split again, right, by the 1830s. And some of the more strict traditional reformed communicants actually leave and form a so-called Christian reformed church. So you now have this sort of low-level schism happening where some of the traditionalists are leaving. And then right after that, the 1840s and 50s, you get another wave of Dutch immigration from Europe. So you have Dutch people coming and immigrating and settling in Michigan and Illinois and Iowa, and especially a lot in Michigan. And they even create a town called Holland, Michigan, which is just like super Dutch. And these guys are used to the Dutch teachings, you know, the hardcore canons of Dort, old-fashioned. So they basically just automatically go over and join this Christian Reformed Church, the more traditional branch that's split off. So this is really dangerous then for the 
more sort of mainstream, increasingly liberalized reformed church. They basically say, oh, no, we're in trouble. We're losing these Dutch immigrants. So they have to come to the table and make a compromise where they basically hammer out a new set of terms that is closer to the traditional reformed theology, like you see in the canons of Dort and the Belgic Confession and all of that stuff. They are able to reabsorb most of this Christian Reformed Church. That's when then in 1867, they rename themselves Reformed Church in America to sort of emphasize we're totally American, we're not European, but we are Reformed. I have a nagging feeling that there's going to be other problems as we get into Second Great Awakening time in the late (laughs) 1800s. Well, not so much. I mean, this seems to have pretty much settled things on an acceptable footing for this church. But it's significant that they're basically going back to a pretty firmly reformed basis, pretty close to what you'd see in the Netherlands. But they aren't really doing evangelical revivalism. They've sort of put that aside. What they become basically by the 20th century is they become a mainstream, mainline Protestant denomination. What you get in the 20th century is all these guys, all these Protestant guys who don't go evangelical, like Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, they all sort of become similar. They all just kind of become like, yeah, like, we're Protestant. We're not too particular about things. We're like respectable. We don't do that whole evangelical born again thing. And so they become increasingly sort of similar and Like I said, a lot of them are in communion with one another, so people can kind of switch back and forth. They just sort of become part of this mainline Protestant world. And that's really triggered by the immigration of the more conservative Dutch Protestant reform immigrants. Well, that's definitely part of it. That's definitely part of it. If there hadn't been that influx of Dutch immigrants then they probably would have gone more in the liberal direction and become more like Unitarians or even kind of like Quakers, right? Who are also arguably mainline Protestant, but they're just a little bit more on the sort of on the liberal end of things. They have a different niche. So instead, what they where they end up is more kind of like Presbyterians and Congregationalists. But in recent years, the thing is that those distinctions become less and less important. Sure. Basically, more and more what matters is just are you evangelical or are you not? So in the 20th century, they continue to be mostly concentrated in areas with Dutch heritage. So that's like there's a lot in New York. You know, every, every town in New York, in the Hudson Valley, you see a oh, Dutch Reformed Church. Not so many in New England, not so many in the South, and then a lot in the Midwest, especially Michigan. This is basically where they are. And arguably, for a while, they're kind of stagnant, right? Early 20th century, they're just kind of there, they're holding their numbers, and that's it. There are these missions abroad, but, you know, they only get so many followers, But then after World War II, there's a huge growth in church membership. The 1950s was like a big heyday of people joining churches. And as people go out into the suburbs, a lot of people form new churches or join new churches they hadn't been to before, both Catholic and Protestant. So the Dutch Reformed or the the RCA capitalize on this, and they decide to sort of appeal to this sort of broad swath of mainline Protestants and try to bring more of them into these churches in new towns and suburbs around the country. They also expand into Canada. Similar things are happening in Canada. So for the first time, you get Dutch Reformed or RCA churches being set up in 
Canadian cities and, and suburbs, it's able to grow somewhat at this time, 1950s and 60s. And also, partly they go into Canada because there are Dutch refugees after World War II. Some people flee from the Netherlands, go to Canada. And so there's this sort of fertile ground to use them as kind of a seed group to start new churches. But you can probably guess, you know, this doesn't end up lasting very long, right? After 1970 or so, mainline Protestants just stop going to church, <laughs> right? Like it just plummets. So this whole audience of largely middle-class, educated, suburban people that they've built up around are now just not going to church anymore. So there's a really serious decline, you know, probably from a high of maybe 350,000 or so to now under 200,000. And in the 21st century, there's been new disputes and new splits over new questions. And you can probably guess what some of them are. Uh, yeah. And the things that come to mind are like gay rights. Yeah, you got it. You got it. So yeah, gay marriage. Will they solemnize gay marriage? Will they recognize gay marriage? Well, I don't know what solemnize means, and that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> it's when you make a marriage official in a church. Right? Oh, okay, uh, <laughs> great. Okay, that sounds straightforward. Yeah. So will they recognize gay marriages? You know, they're in communion with all these other churches, right? So what if you get gay married over in a congregational church and then show up in an RCA church? Will they recognize that as a marriage? A lot of these issues and questions, they sort of got around because they were in communion with the congregationalists. So you could say, oh, I want to be a gay clergy in RCA. They won't take me. I'll go get ordained by the congregationalists and then hop over right? It sort of creates this back door. So then the controversy became more conservative people in RCA started to say we shouldn't be in communion, we should stop this communion with the congregationalists. But they didn't win, right? The more sort of liberal side won these contests. So increasingly, it it's becoming a more tolerant, you know, liberal church like other mainline Protestant churches. The last sort of controversy you could say was adopting another confession. So we talked about the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, and then finally the Belhar Confession is a statement of faith that was drawn up by the Dutch Reformed Church in Southern Africa. So the big issue there, of course, was apartheid, right, and racial segregation. So the Dutch Reformed Church in Southern Africa took the stand that they were going to be integrated, right? And that they were not going to make any distinctions on the basis of race or color. So they created a statement of faith, which basically says the church embraces the poor and the oppressed and all people without distinction. And the obvious implication was we're not going to segregate. So other Dutch Reformed churches around the world started to then adopt this Belhar Confession. And the RCA Church in America did so I think it was in 2014, if I remember right, the Synod formally adopted it. And some people opposed it. They said, you know, this is really political and it's not really a religious statement in their view, but they did not win. And so that has been added then to the sort of basic core teachings and statements of faith of the church. And that's basically where they stand now, you know, similar sort of liberal positions to other 
mainline Protestant churches and similarly dropping numbers. <laughs> okay. okay, so I can see why they would be in communion with the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians. Based on what you've told me, it seems like those groups too are part of the Reformed Protestant movement in general, just they come from Great Britain in general. Yes, and we'll talk about them later because they're higher up on the list, right? But Congregationalists are the successors and the heirs of the English Puritans. Right. So they're basically the English Reformed Protestant tradition. Mm -hmm. Presbyterians are a little different. They come mainly from Scotland. So remember, Scotland is one of those countries that also adopted Reformed Protestantism, like the Netherlands. And they set up a Presbyterian church, meaning it's governed by synods of elders. So, you know, very similar to Dutch Reformed. And so... Presbyterians in America, a lot of them have Scottish heritage, and it's bigger in New England and the South and the Midwest, places with Scottish history. But theologically, they're very close, very close. So they're all in communion with each other. Technically, they're not with Episcopalians. Episcopalians are a little different. But, you know, today they're all kind of in the same basic bucket. The main thing I'm taking away from the Reformed Church in America is you have a kind of hardline ideology that then is forced to evolve and adapt based on, like, the political circumstances that are changing. Either there's a revolutionary war happening or a bunch of new immigrants are coming in or the English are taking over. It's very interesting to hear you explain how this church has to adapt in order to survive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's so many different challenges in all these different directions. There's the political dilemmas, and then there's the revival movements, the sort of lay pietistic uh, evangelism, and how do you, do you accept that or reject it, or do you incorporate it, and questions about what sort of lifestyle people are living, you know, suburbanization, and all these things are like constantly being thrown at these churches. And yeah, I mean, the RCA is, I think, a remarkable example of how they have adapted and moved in all these different ways with these different crises. And they're still around. And sort of the challenge now is just the same thing that's facing all kinds of churches and, and other religious groups too, which is like people just aren't doing the religion thing as much <laughs> anymore, unless it's particular things, unless it's certain sorts of evangelicalism or revivalism. But they are still around. And just a few famous Dutch reforms. Oh, great. We love fame on this podcast. So they've had two presidents. I'm sure one of them I already mentioned. Yeah, Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore right? Roosevelt. The other... Could be obvious if you think of it. Dutch reform. Dutch. We've had one Dutchy. Dutch reform. Dutch reform. His last name starts with Van. Oh, right. Van Buren, of course. Martin Van Buren. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> one of the most insignificant presidents ever. We had a Martin Van Buren. So he was the first one. And he was, you know, Dutch from New York. And then Theodore Roosevelt. And with Roosevelt, it's sort of interesting. He you know, grew up kind of in this floating back and forth between Presbyterian and Reformed Church of America. He became a reformist of a sort. You know, he was an imperialist. He was racist. He also believed in reform and trust busting and cleaning up corruption and in some ways was kind of populist. Part of what was such a big deal about Theodore Roosevelt when he became governor of New York and then he became president was that he was from this older 
kind of genteel New York elite. A lot of them had Dutch heritage. They all had colonial roots. Some of them were Dutch. They were called the Knickerbocker elite. And they saw themselves as kind of the good, clean, civic-minded, virtuous, old ruling class of New York, as opposed to the Gilded Age magnates, you know, the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers and the Carnegie and all these kind of opulent, ostentatious, industrial robber barons. So when Roosevelt came to power, that was considered like a big shift because now he was like one of the old sort coming back into control to kind of clean up the mess created by this new Gilded Age. But the Gilded Age upper class, a lot of them did have Dutch heritage too. Well, some. I mean, the Vanderbilts did technically. They came from Staten Island and they did have at least some Dutch heritage, but mostly they didn't. You know, Carnegie was an immigrant from Scotland. I don't even know, was Rockefeller from the South? I'm not even sure. But they were kind of a mess, a hodgepodge of all sorts of people. These old Knickerbocker elites like the Roosevelts felt like, you know, we're supposed to own this town. (laughs) You know, who do these guys, you know, these rich, uh, you know, vulgar businessmen building their ugly mansions on Fifth Avenue, who do they think they are? And so Roosevelt kind of came in to clean up the mess a bit. Part of his tie to that old world was being Dutch Reformed. And then as for current famous people, there is one, (laughs) there is one whose name stood out, who recently ran for president and made a bit of a splash running for president. No, not Buttigieg. He's got, he's like from Maltese ancestry. I was thinking he's in the Midwest. Uh, Okay. Who made a splash? Who's Dutch reform? He's a New Yorker, at least loosely speaking. Oh, 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 what's his name? I should know this. He's the billionaire. Is he the billionaire dude? I, I don't know if he's a billionaire. He's super rich. Uh, I don't know if he's a what's billionaire. What's that website that's the news site that, that he runs that is uh, named after him? Oh, Bloomberg? No, no, no. no Bloomberg, Bloomberg is Jewish. Oh, yeah, I should probably know that. Bloomberg is Jewish. He ran for president. He's now currently running for mayor of New York. Andrew Yang? Yeah, Andrew Yang. Oh, interesting. Because part of his family is Taiwanese. And there's that whole Taiwanese branch of the RCA. And that's what he belongs to. I was trying to imagine, like, who's who's from New York who's like a wasp? No, yeah, see, they, they surprise you. But yeah, there's this whole Asian element, and especially Taiwanese. Southern Taiwan was a Dutch colony for a while, and then there were... Dutch reformed missions there. And a lot of the Taiwanese immigrants who come to America are Dutch reformed. Wow. Okay. So there you go. Andrew Yang, (laughs) whether you like him or dislike him, however you rank him, (laughs) he is a member of RCA. He's pretty good looking, I would say. He's got that form. Yeah, he's cute. He's cute. (laughs) Well, thank you, Sam. Thank you for bringing uh, the RCA to me, at least, and hopefully to our listeners. I did not know a lot about RCA. I'm from New England, where there isn't a big presence of this church, but maybe if you're in the Hudson Valley in other parts of New York or in the Midwest, you've seen these churches around and we're curious about them. Now, hopefully, you know a little bit more about their very whiplashy history, very tumultuous history that has calmed down and... Those Dutch, those unpredictable, tumultuous Dutch. Yes, yes. I just ask them for strope waffles, I guess. Very waffle, strong on waffles. I think next is Church of the Brethren. Next is Church of the Brethren. Yes, we're going to get... Even further into weird reformation. They are not a mainline Protestant group. 
No. They would not fall into that category. So that will be a bit of a change from this episode. We talked about the Quakers. If you liked the discussion of the Quakers and the whole radical reformation, we're going to be getting much further into that with Church of the Brethren and then I think Amish and Mennonite after that. Thank you for listening. Yeah, God Save America. God Save America. See you next time. Mm